As Adam said, we're going to be reading scripture. Today's passage comes from 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 26 through 33. Um, in the Pew Bibles, this is on page 492. Um, before we read, this passage for context comes from a moment when Israel was divided into two smaller kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah under the rule, the, the rule of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and Rehoboam, son of Solomon. God chose Jeroboam to lead the northern kingdom in godliness and promised him an enduring dynasty if he did. Jeroboam's faithfulness was short-lived. Listen to how he changed the worship of God's people in the passage so that it was a lot like the worship of God, that God had commanded, but there was a slight change, a deceiving counterfeit of the original. The accepted idolatry instead of God because of the motivations of what Jesus would call later worldliness or mammon. Again, it's 1 Kings chapter 12, starting from verse 26. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everybody. You're the people who can deal with a cold. It's nice. Um, <clears throat> some of you know that uh, a few weeks back, a church that is closing on the east side, Monona Oaks Community Church, that planted this church more than 60 years ago, um, closed and voted to give their building and property to High Point Church. High Point, uh, our elders and some other folks at our church are in the process of like figuring out like how much will that cost and what are we doing and how much is the upkeep for the year and blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, we're also working with another church called Crossroads Church, which is just south of the Beltline on 51, that is also closing um, and is thinking about giving us their property too with certain other caveats and contingencies. Um, and so we're, we're considering all of that as an elder board, um, but we are not gonna receive um, property from another church even though it won't create debt without the church voting for it. And so because of that, to learn more about what's going on, how you might want to vote, what questions you want to ask, what, what things you want to make sure we're considering, we're going to have a town hall meeting on February 4th at 6.30 p.m. And then we're going to have a special congregational meeting to determine whether or not we'll receive this property on February 18th, um, uh, which is also Sunday at 6.30. We thought that this kind of a big thing should be the only agenda at a congregational meeting. And so that is going to be a special meeting. Does that make sense? So um, please come to the town hall meeting. 
or write us an email if you have specific questions, that sort of thing, so we can get um, you whatever information you need. It's actually, I mean, it's very uncommon for this sort of thing to happen. We've been praying about uh, how to expand as a church for a while. Uh, a lot of our nurseries are just super jammed full. It's why we had to go to an 830 service and move our times to try to split things up. And so even though it doesn't look super full today, that's a big deal. The other thing, too, is some of you know that we've been um, working with a church um, on, the, on the near west side called End Times Church. It's led by uh, Pastor Godfrey Stubbs. It's a predominantly African-American multi-ethnic church. And um, a couple of years ago, I talked about us helping them purchase their building because they're a, um, a financially viable church that does, can't own their own building, right? And that was about, has about a $300,000 price tag to buy their building. Their building was sold to um, a, a development group that's going to make apartments. And they're going to lose their church. And that seemed like a really terrible thing. Um, and then they got their rent tripled while they're still in the building. Um, and it turns out that the Monona Oaks building that we would not put two services in, even if we planted a church tomorrow, um, is about three minutes from Pastor Godfrey's house and Sheila's house. And they would love to worship in that building. And they're super excited about the fact that we could like take stewardship of that building. One of the things we could do is actually open it for their church to worship there. And it also means that if you, on the, on the east side, and you would go to church at that campus, you would actually get to hang out with that church as they're leaving and we're coming in, which I think would be really cool. Um, you also um, donated $20,000 approximately to their church through the year in gift so that they could pay their tripled rent until we get to that point. But it really, to me, looks like the possibility that this is a way God is providing for their church. So all that kind of stuff will get discussed. So there's some really exciting stuff to talk about, about how God might be doing some stuff with partnerships and new ministries. There's also some super practical stuff about how much is this going to cost and what kind of faith is going to be required for this? What kind of difficulty is it going to create? And so please consider coming to the town hall meeting and to that congregational meeting. Um, before I jump into the sermon, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to pray. Can we do that? Fathers, we begin this spirituality series, and I speak about this thing that I've been thinking about and writing about for months and months. Um, I pray that you'd help me to deliver my soul in a way that is not angry, that is clear-minded in the midst of the sea of stuff that I've been thinking about related to it, that it would be centered on you, your purposes for us, and what you care about, even though it's deeply embedded into what's happening in our culture and our society. Um, I pray that you would use it to encourage people and not just to discourage them. And that we would believe that um, we operate in all of our failures and all of our difficulties and all the things that we're going to face under your graciousness. That if we have to admit failure in something, that we do it before a God who is gracious, who wants our good, who wants us to turn around, who wants us to come back to him. You said, through your Christ, anybody who comes to me, no matter what, implicitly, no matter what they've done before they come to me, I will never turn them away. And so we come to you with that attitude today, Lord. We pray that you would work in us as we consider what it means to follow you spiritually in these, the first weeks of this year. Amen. Okay. Um, I am not a preacher, primarily. I'm a pastor, okay? You ask people about their pastors, if they're Christians and they go to church, and oftentimes they'll tell you about their pastor's preaching. What you need to understand is, is that pastoring isn't part of pre preaching. Preaching is part of pastoring, right? I and the other staff, pastors, and our elders are shepherds, right? Pastor is an old English word for shepherd that we just haven't updated, right? Shepherd, being a shepherd is a lower than blue-collar job, 
that is full of smelly, dirty, day in and day out stuff that is not glamorous, that is utterly practical, and that involves at least three sort of like horizons of work. One is just doing the stuff with people every day, right? This weekend when I was getting ready to watch some football, I got a call from a family who had had a family member unexpectedly die, tragically, and I needed to drop everything and go and be at their house with them, right? Talk about the funeral and talk about what that meant. And that was just, I had to just get in there, right? And that there's a lot of just day-to-day caring kind of stuff. The second thing is like just understanding the situation and what we're doing, right? This would be kind of like ministries and stuff. Like how are we going to like get together in small groups and, 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 and grow in discipleship and learn about Jesus? And like how do we do all that kind of stuff? It's kind of like the second practical level. But the third level that a shepherd has to think about is like what's changing? What's happening in the seasons? What's the environment Christ's precious blood-bought sheep are existing in, and what's going on, and what has to change. So, for example, if there was, if there was like a drought, and I was a shepherd, I might take my sheep to the northern-facing side of the hill that gets the least sun, because it'll have the best grass, right? If we're getting a lot of rain, I'll go to the south side of the hill, right? Because the rain is going to create— the rain with the more sunlight on the south side is going to create more growth. There's going to be better feed over there, right? So I have to think through sort of the weather patterns, right? And as a pastor— Part of the issue here is that the culture and society that we live in is something like the weather pattern that dictates a lot of the environment in which we are trying to be Christ's sheep and his disciples, in which we're seeking to have faith and grow in godliness, right? And one of the things that we've done over the last several years is at the beginning of the year, as a pastor, I've tried to figure out, like, what is going on in the environment spiritually, and what do we need to talk about? circumstantially. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is because I know for some of you, you're like, you're like, Nick, every sermon should be an expositional sermon. We should read 13 verses, and you should preach your way through those verses, and that's the way preaching should be, because it should be focused on what God has said about himself. Um, Pastors are prone to their hobby horses, so keeping in Scripture very directly keeps us from that, right? And also when we preach directly from passages of Scripture, I'm modeling how to read and interpret the Bible for ourselves. And since we're a literate culture, we all can read and study the Bible for ourselves. So modeling that in expositional preaching is important and helpful. And I believe that the predominance of preaching in any good church should be expositional. Here's what you will also find. When you read the Bible we are expositing in such sermons, there are virtually no expositional sermons in the Bible. Okay? Virtually none. Right? All the epistles are occasional documents in which the pastor, pouring his heart out spiritually to the people he's shepherding, tells them what they need to know in the moment that they're in, in the situation that they're facing, for being a disciple in that particular context. Based on the wisdom God has given him to share with his people. And so, though we should be predominantly in a literate Christian culture, if we were in a non-literate Christian culture, expositional preaching would not be the way. Because people can't read the Bible for themselves, so you need to cover more content and bring it all together in sermons. Topical sermons would be the way, right? When I preach in rural India, I don't generally preach expositionally. I preach theologically, right? Because you all are basically scholars compared to the history of the world in terms of your ability to read. You actually can read the Bible in fantastic translations for yourselves. You should be doing that. Therefore, I can model that interpretation so that you can learn those tools so you can read the Bible for yourself. Otherwise, there's no benefit to expositional preaching. Do you understand? So in this context, for the next few weeks, in this spirituality series, I feel like we need to talk about the environment. What is the weather pattern? What is affecting us? What is the thing we need to talk about? And I've been—I've been looking at this, and I've—I've been reading 
hundreds of pages of articles, all of these books and some other things, because a, a few years back, I wrote a book called Substance. We published it in 2017, and it was about escaping worldliness and pursuing godliness, becoming oaks of righteousness in a world of vapor. And it was really great because the church responded really well to it. People were like, this book was very helpful. I gave it to so many people. It was the first thing we did at this church that actually sold thousands of copies. And I've, I've talked to people who have reread it, and that was all very gratifying. But here's the thing. Since 2017, I think that the, the, the difficulty and that people are having in their faith and in their families and in their life and in their ability to believe that, that I was trying to address, I don't think it's gotten better. I think it's gotten worse. And I think people are more panicked about it, and they're more frustrated, and they're more angry about it. And, and so part of the issue is, it's like, well, well, then what? We need to put our finger a little bit more pointedly on what the issue is, because I do think it's an issue of our choices and our faith, but I also think it's an issue of a profound change in our environment. And over the next few weeks, what I'm, what I'm going to call this is our response to what I'm just going to call the technopoly, and how it's a way of life structured around us, that we have to quit minimizing its effect on us. We have to quit lying to ourselves about what it's actually doing to us and to our kids. And we have to realize that it is intentionally, very strategically created to form a way of life for us and to shape us as human beings precisely the opposite of the way of life Jesus offers us, commands us to obey, and tells us will form us into this thing that is a beautiful thing called godliness. Amen. And will allow us to actually have the capacity to do this miraculous thing Scripture calls love. Now, the definition I want to give of technopoly, this may feel a little technical, but the technopoly is a network of devices, structures, designs, and entities that commodifies us in our consumption. That is, as we consume stuff, it actually turns us into a consumable. Right? Choking not just our spirituality, but our humanity. Another way we could say it is this. The technopoly, it is the franchise that forms in us a counterfeit of human flourishing for the good of its makers by monopolizing our attention with worldliness through hacking our humanity and divinity, inflaming our flesh, and teaching us to ignore our God-given purpose. Think about this for a second in the history of Israel, okay? Jeroboam is in a pickle, right? Because the worship of God is centered in the temple in Jerusalem, right? And so all the people in his country are going out of his country to worship God. In the ancient world, virtually everybody thought of the cult, that is, the worship of God, and the monarchy and its divinity to be intertwined. And so the, so the God and the king, the king is the son of God in the ancient world, right? And so this idea that like Jeroboam would be king, but then all of his people would go to another king's kingdom to worship the God. He's like, this is not going to work because their loyalty towards a king will flow towards their worship. And if they go to the temple in Jerusalem, this incredibly gorgeous temple that Solomon had just built, he's like, they're going to kill me. And then they're going to go back to Rehoboam, and I'm going to be dead. And he's like, this is not going to work. He's like, so he talks over with some of his people. He's like, here's what we're going to do. And he makes these golden calves, and he builds these huge, beautiful altars. One in Bethel, which is 13 miles from the border, 13 miles from Jerusalem. So it's like at the southern end of the kingdom, so they won't have to go any further. And then Dan, which is all the way 
at the top, right? The, the, the river Jordan, right, comes from Jordan, down from Dan. Dan is the northernmost kingdom in the headwaters of the Jordan. If you go today to the city of Dan, the ancient city that's ex- excavated, you can go to literally the place where the Jordan River flows out of Mount Gerizim, and right there, you go up to the top of the hill, and there is the place the golden calf was, right? So the the thing that God gives to make all of Israel flourish, the Jordan River, all of the water that feeds everything and produces all of the wealth of our lives, flows from this mountain on which there is a golden calf, which is your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt and provides for you every day. We will worship him, right? And one of the things that you'll notice is, is that he, he, he changes, he keeps all the rituals, all the things, but he makes them different, right? So there's, there's altars, There's a place, a holy place of worship. There's sacrifices. There's priests. There's a festival. All of the things that God actually commands in the Torah that his people are to do to worship him. This, this, not just the commands. Like, think about this. It's it's not the commands. It's the way. It's the lifestyle, right? So there's maybe 600 commands in the Torah of like, don't commit adultery, and don't misuse somebody who borrows money from you. And there's all these sort of moral commands. But then there's also a lifestyle of worship. There's a way of following God that's meant to form people in like what God is like and what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to believe in him? And that lifestyle shapes people to be the kind of people who will both value and do the commands of God. When you recognize that God is the sovereign Lord in how you worship and you obey him completely in that worship, and you make sacrifices to demonstrate that you have sinned and you've fallen short of that and you require his forgiveness and you live under his grace and your mind is shaped with the lifestyle of worshiping God that way. When you go out and there's a question about whether or not you're going to commit adultery before that God, that lifestyle of worship affects whether or not you're going to obey the Torah, whether or not you're going to do what God commanded, whether or not you actually believe he's there. In, In some sense, the way, the lifestyle, the rituals, the structure— is more important than the commands. Now you might be like, Nick, that, that sounds just like complete blasphemy. Is it? Is it? Because when Jesus shows up, he basically just abrogates the whole law and says if, if you actually live by the law of love and you follow the way of Jesus to be shaped in faith and love towards God and you understand who God is and you learn to worship him and love him and follow him in faith— and you live by the command of love, you will do the whole law. You will literally fulfill all the commands intuitively if you follow the way that shapes you in it. And you see, Jeroboam knows that. And so he offers them something that is like the rituals of actual worship, but that isn't. And it's, and it's like a replica, right? Like, you can have a replica pistol, and it does everything but shoot. Right? Replicas often have everything is the same about them except the primary function of the thing. And you see, the thing about this transformation is is that everything was there except everything that was important. Like, actually obeying what God actually said to do and why. And what the sacrifices meant and who was supposed to do them and under what situations and by what means. and, And all the symbolism was gutted. Because Jeroboam needed a new symbolism for himself. And you see, this was not done to benefit those people. This was done to benefit an elite in leadership that needed people to believe and act in a certain way to support his needs. 
And he knew that the best way to get them to do what he wanted them to do was to appeal to their worst nature. Their desire for ease, their desire for security, their desire for pleasure. Their desire that the difficulty of walking in ethical monotheism and faith. That's too hard. Right? That's too hard. Trusting in God, believing that he is the one God, believing in his ethical and moral demands and how we live in the world in justice and love and truthfulness and mercy, having humility in the midst of that and seeking to grow into his image. That is way too hard. How much better to have a golden calf that brought you out of Egypt that you just make some sacrifices to and the king is like, you guys are fantastic. And they say, king, you're fantastic. And we don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. And this is so great. And it's so easy. And it's so nice. And it's so false. And friends, what I want to tell you is the technopoly is Jeroboam's worship. Functionally. It offers us the things that are like living a human life. They're very similar in a lot of ways. We even use the same words to refer to them. But they're not the same thing. Right? So like, think about this. Since the technopoly has grown up over the last maybe 35 years, are we more connected than we've ever been? Are we more connected than we've ever been? Right? And the answer is, Yes and no, right? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, like, we're massively more connected with everybody. I mean, I could take out my phone right now and find out what my ex-girlfriend from high school did yesterday. <laughs> right? That would have been impossible 40 years ago. I, I mean, I hadn't dated her 40 years ago, right? But like, that would have been impossible 20 years ago. I mean, I could find out all kinds of stuff and from people, and I can send messages to them and so on. I could have, like, six affairs just on my phone. You know, it's like, we're incredibly— potentially connected. And I am connected with people in ways that I could have never been before, right? But like, am I any more, am I more connected than my, with my children or my wife or with you than I would have been if these technologies were either not there or, or structured very differently? Right? And I, my answer to that question is, no, I'm way less connected. Probably way less connected, right? And you can do things like, are we more intelligent? For example, I mean, something that, like, even as Christians, we don't even really care about that much. Like, everybody's made the image of God. I don't care if he's more intelligent than her. Who cares, right? But, like, are we more intelligent? And here's why. Because in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, there was a lot of techno-optimism. This, this, these technologies, they're going to bring us together. They're going to give us wealth. We're going to, like, be more unified as a society, more collaborative. We're going to have less division. We're all going to be smarter. This is going to be amazing. And, like, but literally none of those things have happened. Do you understand? Like, literally none of them have happened. But in some ways, if you're like, well, are we smarter? Well, it's like, well, generally speaking, if we're online 24-7, especially in the younger cohorts, we're more aware of stuff, right? And so if it comes to like, are you, do you know this, do you know this thing? They're like, oh yeah, I know that thing, right? It's like, it's like, oh, okay, so that, but also like, have you noticed that we're way more gullible? Like, maybe you have to be old to realize that. But it's amazing to me just how gullible people who know a lot of stuff are, right? Because without reflection and memory, you can't put the stuff together, right? Because especially, this is especially true in politics, sadly, is you got to have a little bit of memory. I mean, people forget about like what people did two years ago. You know what I mean? Or five years ago, you're like, and all of a sudden the person's like, I'm going to do this now. You're like, literally 10 minutes ago, you did that. 
This is crazy. But like people are just, I mean, the technopoly has a way of just burying that stuff, creating new motion, making new promises. And we go, oh, that's really interesting. Right? What I'm contending is that the technopoly is the most consequential nexus of worldliness, idolatry, and blasphemy in our time. It is diametrically opposed to the way of our master Jesus. It is idolatrous, unspiritual, unloving, unjust, and inhuman. It is a counterfeit of life that serves those in leadership and our desire for ease, safety, and pleasure. And it is a huge problem, way bigger than you've yet imagined, even if you're a crank about it. Right? Now you might be thinking, Nick, this is Madison. Like half of our jobs are in tech. Like I literally work at Google. Or Nick, I mean, don't, I mean, you're literally wearing sneakers right now. Like you use technologies. Like don't you realize that technology is used for everything? Or I mean, even in the church, I mean, the church literally has reached millions and even billions of people by using technologies. I mean, the gospel shot out from Israel because in God's sovereignty, he had the gospel come forth when the Romans built the technology of roads everywhere so that things could go all over the world. Like, when the radio first was invented, Christians took control of this thing and, like, act, found ways to, like, broadcast the Bible all over the world. The people, places there wasn't even electricity across communist lines into places where people could hear about Jesus. Like, the reason why there were televangelist scandals in the 80s is because charismatic Christians got a hold of TV technology and brought broadcast the gospel on radio stations everywhere. Billy Graham reached more people through the television than in any of his crusades. Like, even as Christians, like, the church has a website, Nick! Right? Okay. Agreed. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. Right? And to do, if you want to do a mental experiment about this, just Try to get quiet for a little bit, not during the sermon because this won't last long. And reflect on what if God was making a culture and had all of these technologies at his disposal? How would he have made them and shaped them for human flourishing? Right? And then think about what we've got. And think about if they're similar. See, the issue is not the production of the technologies themselves. That's not what the technopoly is. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a certain way they've come together, run by, like, do you remember when people were talking, first started talking about AI? And they were like, first of all, it was like, is it going to become Terminator? Right? And then it was like, well, you know, what's the AI going to be like? And the answer is, the AI is going to be like whoever programs it. Right? I was talking with somebody recently about using AI in Christian ministry, right? We're talking about, like, creating chatbots for answering Christian questions. And he was looking into the Google AI and the open AI. And the, if you typed into the Google AI something about, like, Jesus, it told you stuff about Jesus. And if you typed it into the Google AI, it sent you to a book about deconstructing your faith in Jesus. Right? They're both AIs. They're both using an algorithm. They're both incredibly sophisticated. They're both amazing technologies. They're also created in the image of their programmers. And that's true for all of our technologies. Why do these shoes look like this? Why is, why is my phone shaped this way? 
Why, why is it this long for this? Why? It's all of it is these are decisions made by people about what our technology will look like and function like. These are all human decisions. These are all choices. Those chase choices are made on incentives and desires and hopes and dreams. And some of those are like amazingly imaginative of like having the internet in your pocket, which sounds really cool. And then some of them are like, we could make a trillion, trillion, trillion dollars. Right. What I mean by the technopoly is there is a merger of the, our capacity to technologically actually manufacture devices like this with universal connectivity, with certain kinds of media or products, news, video games, social medias, sh shopping, put together with actual apps, like people who put together services for those medias, right? Facebook, Instagram, Pornhub, TikTok, right? And the mechanisms by which those things are written so that they will be maximally intrusive and attention-grabbing, like infinite scrolling, notifying you whenever everybody comments on your comment in a forum, showing you how many people like something, all those things that keep grabbing your attention, right? Those four things are being, are used by humans, people who actually put them together in certain ways. And that one of the difficulties we need to recognize about that is one, that there are a lot of perverse incentives about this, is the way economists would talk about it. Like, the incentives for what to do aren't really aligned with human goods. Right? There is so much money to be made. So much money to be made. Right? And that really that really directs a lot. Now, on one level, you could say, but, but Nick, I mean, that's what the free market's all about, isn't it? I mean, the free market is about um, people have a need, and they want it fulfilled, and you can fulfill that need. You agree on a price that you both value, and then you freely trade. I mean, the free market is literally the most just thing that's ever happened on planet Earth. Yes. Yes. It's also one of the most distortable things that's ever happened on planet Earth, because People don't know all the stuff that's going on, especially the more complicated it gets. So capturing free trade into capitalism is very easy, especially when there's enormous consolidation so that only a few companies own 95% of the traffic on the entire internet. And very small groups of people who are very technologically and sophisticatedly elite and financially elite and when they can write any check they want to anybody they want to get on their staff to do anything they want to develop, which is secret, which even congressional groups that are supposed to do oversight can't regulate or get a hold of. I know people that have worked for large technological companies that have done big projects that they are literally never allowed to talk about. Why are they never allowed to talk about it? And I don't mean they can't say how it's done. They can't tell us that it's being done. It's not just pharmaceutical companies that have some perverse incentives. You understand? The second thing is, is that I've already touched on this, is consolidation. Remember the, the techno-optimism of the 90s? Like, it's going to be complete democratization of everything. Everybody's going to have a voice. Everybody's going to be able to say what they want. It's going to be so awesome. It's going to be so merit-based. Yeah, except then like five groups of people began to control ev what everybody speaks through, and then they could start to turn traffic about how it goes through those things. And before you know it, yeah, there's plenty of water, but it's only coming through six pipes. And it's coming through how they control those six pipes. For profit, 
for their political ends. I mean, I don't know if you know this. Uh, there's a guy named Richard. I think his name's Robert Epstein, not Richard Epstein. Robert Epstein voted for Hillary Clinton. He's a lifelong Democrat, but he studies technology. He demonstrated, through not just through computer modeling, but through literally putting computers in people's homes, that Google intentionally moved more votes than the difference in the 2020 election. Straightforward. It's in the congressional record. It's undisputed. That consolidation conglomerated enough money that Facebook, the, the CEO of Facebook, put more money into voter turnout in the 2020 election than what is normally spent by a presidential candidate in their election. And in case you're not cynical enough, it was not spent equally among how it would turn out for different political parties. Right? There, there didn't need to be any voter fraud. For the very few conglomerated, consolidated owners of what we're allowed to see and where all that money goes and what it is doing that you can never dig out except for years and years and years of subpoenas which gets you nowhere. And look, I don't care you vote for. You need to realize what's happening to you, to us, to our children, to our minds. Because if it becomes unthinkable or you become incapable of the basic human processes of faith, what is your discipleship going to look like? What is your faith going to look like? What is your ability to love others going to look like? What is your time usage, which is the currency of love in your life, going to look like? We have to quit minimizing the effect of this. Now, one of the things that starts with is just being honest about the benefits and costs of this. There's a lot of benefits, okay? There's a lot of benefits. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because most of us know what they are, right? The costs are enormous. And one of the reasons why we don't hear more about it, because you move the slide, I'm having trouble. One of the reasons we don't hear more about it is because social science has a really hard time studying things that are complicated, okay? So for example, you can measure in a cohort of young people what percentage of them go to jail. That's really easy. You just count. It's just sheer counting, okay? So for example, when research was done on like spanking kids, like in the 90s, it was like, oh, it's so bad. The only thing they could measure was like how many of them went to jail, what their grades were in school, right? And then you could correlate that with something and you could be like, oh, look, right? But if you say like, are they good citizens? Are they respectful people? Uh, like, all the kinds of things that, like, parents actually care about with their kids. I mean, yeah, we care about them not going to prison, but that's really not where I'm setting the bar for my kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, or like, did they pass school? Like, I know there's some folks who, that really is what they care about. You know, if I was, in, if I was talking to maybe different people, I would be like, I know that's what you care about, right? But like, I, I want my kids to be, like, respectful and caring and loving and service-oriented and, and like, my, my bar's way higher. Here's the thing. That's, it's almost impossible to study in the social sciences because it's so complicated. Like, and here, here, here's something that's actually really hard to study sociologically. Spirituality, godliness, humility. Well, let's just go through them. Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? And that's not to say the science is bad. Science is great. But science is also a fairly blunt instrument, frankly. And it just can't study and research a lot of things that we care a lot about. And that all humans should care a lot about. It's one of the reasons why we have the sciences. And then we have this whole other half of the college called the humanities, 
which is supposed to be as important as the sciences because the humanities are what keep us human as we use the technologies that we come up with in the sciences. But instead, our humanities have withered into idolatry and ideology, and they have no capacity anymore to direct us or chasten us relative to our sciences. I, listen, I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to have to do everybody's job. I'm not supposed to have to be a social scientist and a philosopher and a pastor and a theologian. So I'm a little upset about this, okay? People should be doing this work. But as you work through the literature on this stuff, there are enormous costs that are very difficult to measure, but that are very obviously happening. And so they're hard to quantify. It's hard to say, well, you know, people are like 14% less intelligent. I mean, like, that's really hard to do. But as you work through the changes in people, especially in younger people who are digital natives, the costs are enormous. The document I'm working on in this is about 35 pages right now. The costs—I mean, I'm, I'm just getting started with this slide. Concentration, unbelievably negative effects. Human memory. Human memory requ requires you pay attention to one thing at a time. Otherwise, you can't transition things that you bring in into memory. That's why you can listen to 15 podcasts, hear a bunch of incredibly cool stuff, and not remember most of it later. Right? Reflection, which is actually when you like, in mental processing, one of the things you don't realize is most of your creativity, most of your interesting intuitive thoughts, most of your major life decisions, and most of your processing of personal trauma happens when nothing else is happening in your mind. So when you go on a walk, and you don't listen to anything, and you look at the birds and the trees, that's when you go, you know what, I am going to move to Virginia. I am going to do that master's program. Or I need to dump my stupid boyfriend. Or I, or like, you know what, I, I don't want to keep doing X. Or, you know what, what if I did this? Or I'm going to send my job application to that. Or, you know, my dad didn't mean that when I was nine. He didn't mean what I heard. That was, yeah, that wasn't, and your mind is working these things through, right? The other time it works things through is when you sleep. Guess what people do a lot less of when they're on their phones? Sleep, right? So we never have our minds doing nothing, and we don't sleep. Is it any wonder we're going insane, right? Like, th these are cold equations of our humanity, right? And so on. All right. Sorry, I needed about three hours for this talk, but we're going to keep moving here, okay? Which of these things— actually affect our faith and godliness as human beings, right? The answer is literally all of them. The effect of the technopoly on your life is literally creating a human disability for your capacity to serve and love Jesus and to grow in godliness. And it does that, friends, by design. Not because the people who run the conglomerates are Satanists. They're not. It's because being a reliable, attentive consumer is the opposite of godliness. And what all of these companies have their most functional incentive towards is that you are an attentive, reliable consumer. Which is literally the opposite of a self-controlled, deliberative, mature, content, sacrificial, others-oriented, godly, faithful person. So I have to keep moving here. Okay. There's four things I want to talk about this Sunday in the last minute of the sermon. Okay, sorry. We'll go back. Let me go back. You're going to get a handout next week. We, there was a printer issue with the weather and blah, 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 right? Um, but you, if you hit this, um, 
this QR code, you can get this, right? One of the things that we, we don't want to actually be realistic about is what we are as human beings. It, this always comes back to anthropology. What has God made us to be as human beings? The less you understand what you are as a creature, the less you understand about how hackable you are. Because God made you a creature, he made you a being that has hormones and a limbic system and a neurology and a capacity for attention and receptors in your eyes that see color and, and a sexuality and all the attractional systems that go along with that and a desire to see what other people are doing because they could be after something or, or to be scared about your security. All those mental processes of survival, and all those functions of your body are all imminently hackable because they're tied to desires and wants and urges and reactions. And so the, the more you deny that you are an embodied person, you are a physical creature, you are a human being, the more in denial we are about how easy it is to hack us and to get us to eat whatever they want us to eat and to get us to buy and to look at and to pay attention to and believe in whatever is conducive to whatever perverse incentives accompany the positive incentives of whatever we might be doing. You're a divine image bearer, which means that you can actually do the works of God in the world. It also means that you can be an idolater, so selfish that you think that you're a god and that everything should serve you, which the consumption market of the technopoly is happy to encourage right? You are distempered in the brokenness of the human condition of the flesh. We're supposed to be putting the flesh to death. The technopoly profits immensely from it. They have no incentive to help you kill the flesh, right? And your life has a purpose. Like, like you're a steward. You're meant to be a builder of a worker in the kingdom of God, like one of his shepherds and one of his people. Like, you weren't made to waste 70 hours a week on stupid, vacuous crap that doesn't matter. But you see, if you don't believe that about yourself, that, the, that you're supposed to make use of your time, then what's the big deal with wasting all of it? Right? Over the next four weeks, I'm going to talk about that in relationship to faith, what we believe, our time, what we do with our lives, formation, what is shaping us, and love, actually connecting with and caring for others. And then the last week, the sixth week, I'm going to specifically talk about um, things you can do like applications. Like my phone has been on grayscale for the last three or four weeks. It makes me so angry. <laughs> but I also can't put it in my pocket fast enough. You know, there's, just, there's a whole bunch of things you can do. Some are major lifestyle changes. Some are very simple, okay? A lot of them is you're going to delete a bunch of apps, okay? But, um, and there's some questions for conversation. But I, I just want to end with these four things. These are, my, these are my goals throughout the next six weeks. These are what I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to believe and do, right? There's, there's, there's one thing to believe and to do for your freedom, and there's one thing to believe and one thing to do for your formation, okay? The first thing is you need to see and flee the technopoly. We need to stop minimizing the effects of the technopoly. And listen, the culture, the professionals who are supposed to help you do this are not going to do this. Doctors, I'm sorry I'm about to pick on your profession and medical people. The American Academy of Pediatrics, who I am no fan of their incredible politicization, in 2016, amended their parental guidelines, okay? The parental guidelines said that a teenager, up to through their teens, should not be on screens more than two hours a day. To which, in 2016, the APA said, listen, you know, not all screen time is the same. You know, coding, writing code, and flipping through Instagram, they're very different in the effect on the human person. That's true. And you know what? The last time I walked through a, a crowd of teenagers on their phones, 75% of them were coded, right? <laughs> 
You know, like, I mean, I don't know how crazy you can be, right? But essentially what they said is, this is what they said. We, we don't have any new data, but we know that it's hard to limit teenagers' screen time. So what we encourage is that you, and I quote, engage them in conversation about their screen usage. Are you flipping kidding me? Are they idiots? Yeah, you know, that goes really well. It's awesome. You say, yeah, tell a teenager, hey, let's engage in a conversation on your screen usage. And you, they go, you know, you're right. Like, I'm just on it all the time. It's probably not good for me. You know, like, I should, I mean, I should be really intentional about what I do. This is, this has been so helpful, Dad. You know what I mean? It's unbelievable. Look, it's, I mean, the cowardice, the complete abrogation of the most basic responsibility in a profession is unbelievable. Like, is it any wonder there's no trust in our institutions? The only job of the American Academy of Pediatrics in this moment is to tell people they are right to think that screens and the technology are destroying their children's lives. It's like their only job. That and like the polio vaccine, for God's sakes. Like, I mean, I do not understand how these people can be such cowards. You know why they're doing it? Because I'm a coward. That's why they're doing it. They don't want to make me feel bad. They know that I'm terrible at, at telling my kid they're not going to be on a screen anymore. If I have to shut the water and power down in my house, screw them, they're going to read a book, right? Or make a friend, or play a sport, you know what I mean? Like, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm bad about it myself, and I watch too many YouTube videos, but here's what I know. That Jesus the living Christ died for my sins. And so I can admit that I'm a failure. I can admit that I suck at this. I can admit that I'm probably a bad parent. Okay? But I don't need some group of pseudo-professionals to tell me it's fine. It's not fine. I am not only a sinner, I am a damnable sinner. Jesus didn't rescue me from a couple of mistakes. He rescued me from hell because I've completely dropped the ball on my humanity. I treat people terribly. I'm a sucky parent. I don't eat well. Like, like you could just go down the list and it would be nothing but a list of my failures. And Jesus died for me and made me one of his precious lambs, not just so that I could feel better about myself, but so that I could face myself and him. And kids, let me just tell you, your parents are cowards. Like God is working in them. He is working in us. We're trying to become rightly brave, right? You should beg us to cut your screen time. You should get on your knees and say, Dad, I know you're a coward. I know you're a weak, weak coward. I know you are on your phone all the time. I know you want to watch more YouTube videos. I need you to stop me because my cucumber is pickled. I just want this stuff so bad, and I need you to be a grown-up and to tell me this. And I'm going to probably tell you I hate you and cuss you, but listen, I need you to help me. Kids, listen. You should beg them. You understand? What that would lead to would be an incredible intentionalism and asceticism 
about our digital life. We would get rid of 85% of it, well, a lot of it. We would make it serve us, not us be the servants of it. And we would realize that we're going to be constantly sliding back into it. So intentionalism isn't enough. You would have to have asceticism. Training and self-discipline around movement in the wrong direction. Right? Then we need to realize that Jesus is not just our Savior. He's our Lord, which means master. And the master has disciples, and the master's teaching a way of life. We cannot be Jesus-saved people without accepting him as master and taking on his way of life. We have to stop taking on the Technopolis way of life. We need to take on Jesus' way of life, or we cannot really experience being his disciples. And then lastly, we have to actually figure out what that is and walk in it. Now in the fall, we're going to do a longer series on a rule of life. What does it look like to actually walk in the way of Jesus in extremely practical ways over 12 weeks where we'll actually practice it? But I didn't want to wait that long because you're being, your faith is being choked to death by the technopoly when you submit to it. A lot of these technologies are beautiful things. They really can help us. A lot of good has been done through them and can be done through them. But like <clears throat> sugar and caffeine and firearms and all kinds of things, sex, they are potent opportunities for our misuse through perverse incentives and all kinds of other things if we don't grow in the maturity necessary to use them beautifully, recognizing that the flesh is operative in us and in everybody else. I want you to be free, and I want you to be able to be formed in the image of Jesus, and I want you to be able to enjoy it and thrive in it, and I want you to feel like no matter what happens around you, you can believe in the one who never is going to buy into the counterfeits of Jeroboam, who knows what real worship is, and that you know that you know him. Okay, sorry, I gotta stop. Jesus, um, please help people sort through what I said for exactly what they should believe, see, and do. I pray that you'd free your people from worldliness, particularly the, the form of the technopoly, not so that we would be Luddites or technology-hating people, recognizing that your te the technology capacity you've given us is an incredible good, to subdue the earth and to do good in it, but that we are not good enough for it. And we pray that you'd help us to be realistic and honest and truthful and humble and to learn to follow your way and to incorporate the technologies that you've given us in ways that are creative towards flourishing and no other in Jesus' name. Amen.